All right. All right, everybody. Thank you guys very much for coming out. Today we are going to be discussing why identity access management is the new perimeter and how to better govern it and make it more secure. So uh, go through some quick introductions. My name is Brian Johnson. I'm the CEO and co-founder at Divi Cloud. I'm Chris Porter. I'm a senior vice president and CISO at Fannie Mae. Uh, Steve McIntyre, Vice President of Shared Security Services, Fidelity Investments. Jason Pryor, I'm the Cloud Security Architect and Manager of Cloud Security Engineering for 3M. So the, the, the style of this is obviously a panel. So we're going to go through this sort of a set of questions. We're going to leave some time at the end to take questions from the audience. We don't have an extra microphone, so you need to yell. If you feel like you have a question that needs to be answered right away, you can also yell at any time. It's fine. All right, so we're going to go ahead and get this kicked off. So the, well, we went over this. It's the agenda. Mm -hmm. All right, so why is identity so hard? I think what we're going to do is we're going to basically go down a panel and let each one of the panelists answer the question as we go. And so we'll start with that. Why is identity so hard? Well, I think it's been hard forever, uh, to be honest. Um, I used to work at Verizon, and Verizon has this report that they put out every year called the Verizon Data Breach Report. And I worked on that for about six or seven years. And one of the things that pops up in that report every single year is around how identity is one of the main reasons that, that comes up because of a data breach. Um, one thing in particular has to do with one facet of identity around authentication. And I believe this last year, 29% of all the data breaches that were analyzed had credentials stolen. So I don't know if any of you have to deal with this on a daily basis, we do constantly where you know, credential stuffing attacks are taking place or bad guys are immediately trying to come into an organization um, and steal the identity of somebody within the organization in order to further whatever uh, type of attack that they're trying to do, whatever means that they're trying to get to. And, and so identity has been tough, as I mentioned, for a long time. How many folks are familiar with AAA um, when it comes to identity? I have to like block the, the sun here to see the hands. There, there are people here, I didn't know. Yes, uh, so um, for those that are out there, I mean, there's three really big pieces around identity, but it's authentication, there's authorization, and then there's accountability. So authentication, we're all familiar with passwords or the something you know, something you have, something you are, somewhere you are kind of aspects. The authorization, is the, the piece around what should people have access to and making sure they can only access the things they should have access to. And then one of the harder ones that I find is um, accountability. So making sure that you're validating and logging and monitoring that the people can only access the things that they have access to. And it's the actual person um, that, that is accessing that. But I think where identity is getting even harder these days, and maybe it shouldn't even be called identity anymore, it should be called entity is that everything has an identity now, especially as you move into cloud, multi-cloud environments. Resources have identities, services have identities. It's just becoming more and more complex. So you're taking an already hard problem, adding complexity to it, and it makes it harder. Yeah, and, and I think that, uh, you know, as Chris said, we, we've dealt with identity throughout, right, the life cycle of technology, but now as you go to cloud, cloud's closed by default. If I don't authenticate you and authorize you, you can't do anything. And so, you know, when you look at a platform like AWS, identity is, it permeates through the whole ecosystem. And it's a critical component of really how you enable your development teams. Um, so how many people in here are developers by nature? And, and how many people actually deal with least privilege on a daily basis, right? 
And this and is the case where we take privileges away from you in order to get your job done, right? That's right. Yeah. You know, and, and so what's happening is as we move to cloud, that becomes even more paramount to do it right, to do least privilege correctly. And when you think about a DevSecOps environment or a DevOps environment, we're passing that responsibility on to people that in many cases aren't equipped to deal with it or prepared to deal with it. So um, that makes it even harder as we move into the cloud world and, and we enable those DevOps teams. So the only thing I can add, because I agree completely with everything else that's been said, is that the human element is and always will be the weakest link. Um, identity is fundamentally tied from an access perspective to an entity, um, typically an identity of an individual, a human who for right now has a username and a password, ideally some sort of two-factor or multi-factor authentication, but there are social engineering attacks, which by and large is the number one way people have their credentials compromised. And it, you can't engineer a tool or a problem to fix the human uh, component. That's something that is gotta be intrinsic to the people who you're giving access to, to do the right thing, to know the right thing, and be the right thing. Very cool, yeah, I think, the, especially on the complex part, what's interesting is the introduction of things like Kubernetes, which all of a sudden creates a whole new layer of identity inside of your already existing complex identity systems. It's very meta, right? Very meta, yeah, that's right. <laughs> very, very meta. So, sort of continuing on that theme, and we'll, Steve, we'll start with this one with you, is why is it so important for you guys to get this right? Well, I mean, I think as, as you move to cloud environments, identity really is the key. Uh, you know, and when we were in the data center, you used to rely on a security team that really built out a very hard perimeter around a nice safe box that was the data center. And, and so within that, you had some liberties to be able to manage your applications a little looser from an access perspective. But as you move into a cloud environment, in many cases, that identity is the only key to that data. And so it really is you know, incumbent upon us to get it right the first time because the bad actors are out there and they're looking constantly for a quick path into an organization and identity is the easiest path. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, I mean, I think in enterprise architecture, it's, it always has been the only key. It's been the key, the skeleton key. If you get identity wrong, then you're opening up your company to a lot of risk. Getting it right enables your business to do the right things at the right time with the right amount of access. And on top of that, within the cloud, cloud just makes everything so much more complex because, because everything's an identity, everything has to be done right. Resource policies, not something people really know about and take a lot of care to do right. And yet that is providing a context around the identity of an S3 bucket or a KMS key, or other avenues through EMR, SageMaker, which have additional identity components that we have to get right. It's not just do we do policies right, do we do roles right, do we do federation right. It's all of that, and it keeps becoming more and more complex as AWS awesomely adds more services. <laughs> it makes our job as the security folks a lot more complex because now we not only have to understand how does the service work, but how does it from an identity perspective integrate and work across this service, mat, uh, service fabric mesh 
not only in the cloud, but potentially on-prem if you run a hybrid. How do you go from the cloud back on-prem? How do you go from on-prem to the cloud? Because depending on how sophisticated your platform is, you're going to have a lot of challenges translating from on-prem to the cloud. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the key pieces around what you sort of mentioned was um, around perimeter, right? Mm -hmm. So historically, you know, you have the big wall that's protecting everything on the outside, the sort of hard candy shell. Then you've got the soft inside that you kind of get a little loose with. Uh, yet, when you move to a cloud environment, and even you, you could say so today, is that the, the inside of the network is just as untrusted as the outside of your network. And when you're moving into a cloud environment where things are a little bit more squishy around who owns what, what's the responsibility of who, uh, where is that actual perimeter? Is it at the, the boundary level? Is it the resource level? Is it the identity? Is it the network, et cetera? It makes it much more difficult. I mean, this is one of the reasons, um, you know, Google, um, are we allowed to say Google here, by the way? <laughs> um, you know, Google had a, a Beyond Corp um, sort of model, and you've probably started hearing about zero trust, um, where uh, you have a specific um, device that is trusted with a user that is trusted who is authorized to a specific resource, and only then do you, certain, you allow access. Um, and those kinds of models are because nothing can be trusted anymore. Um, you have to have that identity has to be one of the, the main pieces of that, that piece. I don't know if people are waving over there or they're raising their hand for questions. No? No. No? No. No, no. <laughs> no. just double check. All right. Good. Yeah, I think, and, and again, sort of on, on all of that, right, the, the interesting part about it is that as you move forward and you design your cloud infrastructure, you're thinking about all these different problems. I think what keeps me up at night as a security expert is that I will go out and look at the tools that are being developed to compromise environments. And it's always a good way to look, is how far along is the tool progression? Because that will show you how educated your attackers are. Uh, and compare that to how educated your internal systems are. And what's interesting about watching this model is they're progressing at almost the same rate of like education of how to run and design these kinds of things and, and how you actually go about dealing with the fact that you have a, a whole network of attackers out there constantly coming at this and coming with really mm -hmm. interesting ways. So I, I think from that perspective, when you think about designing IAM on AWS, Jason, how do you design IAM on AWS and how is it different? Well, from my perspective, ultimately you have to start with the people. And however you define people inside of your organization, um, that's where you start. And then you look at how you define entity or resource. What is this construct of a service, a resource, whether that's compute, storage, or microservice, serverless function, they're all identities in the cloud. And as you want to take that journey into the cloud, you have to take that into consideration. So you really have to go back to step one. How do you do the, the right, the simple things like how do you add and remove people in your on-prem platform today? Because if you do federation, which you should be doing for human access to the environment, that's what drives that process. So if you're not doing ads and removes well in your company, you're not gonna do access well in the cloud. If you don't have a good process for reviewing what appropriate access should look like, how do you provision that access today to platform services databases? you're not gonna implement that well in the cloud. So it, it's, it's hard for people to be gung-ho in the cloud and being told, well, hold on, wait, look at your processes today. 
because your technology, the tools, the people, and the processes that you do on today is going to drive how you interact with the cloud. Unless you want to have two completely different processes, what you do on-prem and what you do in the cloud, which is not going to work if you want to run uh, full steam ahead with production in the cloud and on-prem. As far as how is it different, uh, again, IAM is the underpinning for everything in the cloud. Everything in AWS is an identity. Therefore, everything in AWS has to have a policy and action and a principle associated with it. Who can do what, where, and how? Understanding that, developers, you need to know how to construct IAM policies. Because you can't tell the security team, well, I need to work on uh, EMR, or I, don't, I need to run a Lambda function. Without knowing, here's the rule set for my identity and access management for this function. Even EC2, compute, has an identity, has an access management platform and layer that you have to take into consideration. On the reverse side, S3, it is the number one thing that people point to with uh, security incidents in AWS. And yet, if you take a poll on how many people are actually putting a resource policy that restricts access, controls who, what, where, when, why, and how somebody can get to the objects that you're storing in S3, chances are the majority of them don't do that today because they rely solely on the IAM policy and that's not sufficient. So you have to tackle identity and access management on AWS from the resource, from the principle, as well as the action. I mean, S3 asterisk isn't your favorite policy. <laughs> start out star? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, the, it's the best way to get started in the cloud. <laughs> and it's, it's the best thing that persists because no solution lasts longer than a temporary uh, fix. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we, we have a, a pretty different way that we have set up our uh, identity in, in AWS. Um, so there's one aspect, what you just sort of mentioned. We wanted to tie it to our, auto, our, our already IAG system, identity access governance system that we're using on-prem. And so we federate our, our users and roles into AWS. But one of the things that we did is um, we started looking at personas. So what, what is a persona that we would need from a user perspective, something that we could kind of standardize and automate the creation of. So things like a DevOps person, a um, analyst, a uh, support um, role. Um, we wanted to sort of create, what, what are all these standard roles and then what are the associated policies that should be associated with these standard roles that are out there? And so when we create an application, we can automate the, the provisioning of all of these different roles, these personas, into that application from the beginning. Uh, now, that gives you a lot of speed. It also can, at some point in time, uh, create uh, some challenges where, you know, as new services come on, you have to then go back and, and look at those policies that, that are associated with it um, over time. And, and that, we found, is one of the, the bigger things is when a new thing a new service comes out or the service changes and now there's, a, there's new policies that are associated with it um, makes it especially challenging. Um, but there's job roles, there's user roles, there's application roles, there's service roles, there's shared roles that go across the environment. 
And, and how do you uh, make sure that they're standard in a way across the environment so that you know what each of these roles are doing? Um, another thing we did is none of our roles, or very few of our roles, are we're not using local um, AWS accounts. These are all federated. Um, but we're also setting it up in um, a more vertical stack that is application-based as opposed to having more horizontal roles that can access everything across the organization. So within an application, for instance, you have all of these personas, but if you're in, say, the support role for one application, you can't automatically gain access to a separate application over here. Um, you have to go get provision for the support for that application over there. This makes things a lot harder than what you have on-prem, where you're like, you have a database support team that accesses every database on-prem, um, where in this environment, they just need to have access to this particular application for this particular time, especially since it it's, a, it's more of a managed service. Um, so that sort of vertical hierarchical sort of stack is something that, that is a little bit different for us in how we've set things up. Um, it creates its own challenges, but from a security perspective, it, 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 it really helps um, quite a bit. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that Chris touched on, which is the constant change in terms of identity and access management permissions, whether new services are being created, you know, existing services are uh, evolving over time, and it's, it's difficult to keep up with. So we've taken an approach where we, we introduce those in a very systemic way and, and really rely on, on a default set of roles for the developers that's consistent across our development environment. Uh, and then we've really enabled our application teams to design their own runtime roles, to your point, Chris, right, that vertical stacking. And then, you know, we've designed automation to allow them to, you know, to deploy that. Um, but it, it really is also important to bring transparency to IAM. When you design IAM in AWS, uh, it's multi-tiered, yep. uh, especially with some of the newer services. What we learned is they're dependent on other services. And so it really becomes complex when you start to layer out how these services are going to operate, how they're going to interact with each other. Um, and so we really need to take a methodical approach. How that's different from on-prem is really how that interaction between services happens, right? Um, you know, we used to, you know, you think about on-prem, there was a service account that ran the entire app. It had access to everything, the database, the data, you know, so on and so forth. But as you move to the cloud... And sometimes it, even people use and them. And sometimes yeah. even people use Which them. Which is yeah. always fun when people yeah. start using service I, I believe accounts. those development yeah. support yeah. folks, maybe. Well, and I, and I would <laughs> add to that, I think one of the ways in which identity access management is different in AWS is the fact that we can change the paradigm of identity access management. Um, I think you touched on it a little bit with regards to the verticality uh, within mm -hmm. applications, but changing the philosophy in the way, because developers, uh, if you've ever had a production instance, how many of you have logged on to production to fix the problem in production? <laughs> oh, come on, it's, it's okay, I'm not, yeah. It, it we're happens, not, okay? Not your uh, we, we all know it happens. <laughs> yeah. Now, my next question is, did you go back to your staging environment, your dev environment, and your QA environment to make that same change? Never. No, and no, why let, would let me ask you another question. <laughs> How different is your production environment from your staging environment, from your dev environment? Probably drastically, which is probably why you had the, the production issue in the first place, because it's different. And you have these crazy complex configurations that change environment to environment. So doing identity and access management actually fundamentally starts to shift how you do all of your activities in the cloud. If I'm not giving you access to production, 
How are you going to deploy resources? How are you going to fix things when things break? How do you know when something has broken? Because you're not doing your daily job in prod, you get access to dev. Well, I think that's a pretty fantastic segue, right? Yep. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, the, the, when, we moved, when I worked for Electronic Arts and we moved into cloud, it was under the guise of saving money. That may have not turned out to be true, but, uh, but what we did learn along the way is that we, were, we got all this crazy ability to innovate as, as a company. And we, our engineers will do so much more than they could when IT sort of got in the way. And so as an organization, we had to play maybe a slightly different role than we were used to playing. A, you know, we used to play a gatekeeper role, and now we need to play more of a referee. So thinking about that, and, and I've heard you guys talk about similar uh, elements over there when we were talking off to the side about guardrails. Now you leverage and sit on the side, but still enforce. So how do you guys leverage guardrails today, specifically around identity, and, and ultimately to allow for that freedom to occur? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got different guardrails at various levels within um, our sort of identity stack. So there's things that are at the um, org and account level. There's things at the AWS IAM level. There's things at the, the resource level. And then there's things that are more at the, the network um, layer, NACLs, which um, I know my developers in particular and cloud engineering folks really hate um, more so than anything. Um, and so at each layer, there's different things that allow um, certain activities and, 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 and that kind of boundary um, across each of those. I, I think the, the hard part for us in, in those ways is, is proving that that model is actually working, right? So you give access to something, um, and how do you actually prove that it's working the way you intend it to work? Right, so if, say something has access in this one account and you know that there's a policy on there that says S, S3 asterisk. Well, actually that gets blocked at three other levels even though at this particular resource it says S3 asterisk. Um, and then proving that out with some form of testing is in, incredibly difficult, um, but it has to be multi-layered. I mean, there's, there's a, a concept within security called defense in depth. Um, and the easiest way to think about that is, is the sort of castle and moat sort of thing, right? Well, um, you know, you've got the moat, you've got the gate on the castle that goes over the, you've got the, the hard walls, um, you have archers. We need archers and security um, to like, you know, hit some of these things as well. But like you, you have these layers of defense that are protecting your crown jewels within your organization. Um, and you have to think within AWS, your layers of defense are those different levels of boundaries within, your, within the policies that you're setting up for each identity, whether it's at the service level, the resource level, the boundary level, the account level, all of them are working in concert together to protect your information out there. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, when you think about guardrails and, and kind of this journey, right, as you start, um, we were very protective of identity. <laughs> um, you know, we, we had a, a small team of individuals that were supporting our entire enterprise from an identity and access management perspective because we felt it was that important. Uh, and then you, know, you start to realize that that's not scalable. They do like mm -hmm. to sleep and eat and see their family. Uh, and, and so you know, we, we realized that the guardrails had to be more in an automated fashion. And so that team actually, you know, from an, you know, an innovation perspective, realized that they could enable our development teams and still apply these guardrails from the preventative side right, by really creating automation to allow them to design and deploy their own roles, 
but enforce the constructs that are important for us for that defense in depth approach. So that allowed us to, to kind of get out the door. And then obviously from a detect and respond perspective, we're, we're right there on the side watching. You know, someone veers outside one of those guardrails, you know, we bump them in gently, we hope, but in some cases, depending on the severity, you know, we do it as quickly as possible and as yep. meaningful as possible. I completely agree. And so from my perspective, I start with, uh, back at kind of the philosophy. Security, when it's done right, actually enables the business to do better, faster, and more without actually being that gatekeeper, without actually being a stopper and what is consistently a four-letter word for most uh, developers and ops groups. And guardrails and automation is really how, from a security perspective, we accomplish that in enabling them. And my, my motto that a lot of people at uh, 3M are starting to groan whenever they see me pop up is do better, be better, expect better. And in that same vein of enabling the business, the guardrails are what control what I care about. And I want to give you the freedom to do the things that I don't. I'm going to give you a base default set of permissions, for example, in a role um, if you're going to deploy code. But I'm going to deploy the pipeline. I'm going to give you the template that I want you to use. And if you try and do something that I don't want you to do, automation is going to prevent you from doing it. I'm going to know about it. If it's bad enough, your manager is going to know about it. And you may lose your access. But as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing in the environment and you're not hitting those guardrails, I don't ever want you to have to talk to me. I don't want you to have to come to me and tell me, hey, can I do this in production? Go ahead. As long as, you're not, as, long as I'm not coming to you and I'm doing guardrails right, then you know you're not in trouble. And I, I think Jason touched on a good point there, right, is those guardrails have to be consistent throughout your environments. Yep. You can't apply a different set of <laughs> controls for production that you do for staging and dev because otherwise that will be the problem you have is the developers yep. will think they're in good shape until they try to go to production and then the game changes. We change the game for them and all of a sudden they're non-compliant. So. Yep. I mean, I think it's, you know, to, since I'm the, uh, the, the CISO and probably the less technical uh, guy up here, it, it's all bumper bowling, yep. right? So <laughs> we want people to be able to just bowl and try to knock down as many pins as they possibly can um, and our job is to make sure that you don't go in the gutter. Because um, ultimately, from a security perspective, if the ball goes in the gutter, I'm the one who gets fired. Um, you know, <laughs> you go <laughs> not the, the developer, the <laughs> not, not, not the people building the applications. It's, uh, it's the CISO always gets uh, canned in about six months you know, after something big that happens. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, you know, I want you to bowl a strike, um, you know, uh, whether or not you bowl a strike is dependent upon how well you write an application. Sometimes you're, you're not going to roll a strike. You're just going to hit a couple of pins. Um, but ultimately we want to make it as, as easy as possible. Like just get up there and bowl and, you know, keep it, keep it away from the rail. Standardization actually is a security principle, um, particularly in the cloud. If you can implement a process that everybody it repeats, you actually inherently gain security because you can focus on that one process. And you know anything outside of that process is either rogue actions or people who just don't know how to read and follow instructions. And you can go have a wonderful conversation with them. And I think we touched on this a little bit already, which is that validating um, an evidence that you're actually doing this correctly is incredibly complicated. 
I mean, with a lot of the with a lot of our customers out there in the market, the, the three things we see that change in them is the number of resources they're having to manage, the rate of change, which is the rate of change for those resources, so how often they're actually changing, and then of course the number of people making those changes. And so with all that going on all at the same time, and then you're trying to enforce guardrails, and then you're trying to move this thing forward while still allowing them to bull strike. How do you continue to do that, but also prove that you're doing it correct? I, I mean, it's one of the strengths of the cloud, actually, in that the telemetry is there, right? Everything is visible. Um, it's really about being able to, to pull that data out and, and tell a story. Um, I think one of the things to look at is, you know, what are the number of deployments that are happening without guardrails, without gates, you know, whether it's a gate or a golden ticket, whatever term you use in your organization, how many people are gaining those smoothly and getting to, you know, the production environment, uh, knowing that, that IAM is a key part of that and that it's working properly. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's a big thing for us. Um, I think the evidence, again, you can pull that out. Um, there was, I think, an announcement today that there's a, you know, a new service coming from AWS to help in that space. Access Advisor uh, is really improving. Um, we, you know, we had a conversation once with one of the uh, forensics experts at, at uh, AWS, and you know, and this was just recent, you know, fairly recently. And he said it's really easy to tell what someone did in the cloud. It, it's much more difficult to tell what they might be able to do, uh, and so it's a challenge. And, and that's where those guardrails really come into play. And, and then again, taking that data that the cloud provides and, and bringing it forward through whatever tooling you choose to be able to show people you know, what access an, an entity in the cloud really and truly has at any given time. Yep, and I would say that right now, I think it's an evolving effort. I think that just this week leading up to reInvent, there have been at least four or five different identity and access management announcements that help drive this and get to what I would call my utopian state of identity and access management, um, which is the right access at the right time for the right person and not having uh, identity and access management sprawl, whether that's role sprawl, um, identity sprawl, AD sprawl, um, getting into things like session states um, and session attributes, um, attribute-based access, uh, custom variables in the resource policies, and just continuing to be able to uh, do that. And, and one of the things that I'm working on inside my organization is as we roll out guardrails, we call them basically campaigns. And these campaigns consist of communication on what it is we're actually trying to do and accomplish within a given guardrail. And that comes with a understanding of how are we going to monitor this activity? Because we're gonna to communicate to these people, here's what we expect you to do. And when you don't do that, you're gonna get a nice email from us. But how on the back end do we monitor that compliance, that adoption rate? Because just having a control doesn't mean that people are actually gonna start doing that. How do you lower the barrier of entry for that solution and that control? And then how do we monitor and continue to drive better adoption, better enforcement, because at some point I'm gonna put hard enforcement in place, which means that I'm going to prevent you from doing something that you're not, that you're trying to do, making S3 buckets public um, in, in one case. Identity, trying to log on as root, because um, somehow you think you need root access to an account, um, and you don't. 
But <laughs> to that like effect, a true just to reinforce, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> but it, it's important that, that however you choose to do your identity enforcement, that you have the reporting coming back out because that should be feeding back into the next set of controls, the next set of ways in which you're seeing how people are trying to do things in your cloud. Because unfortunately, uh, people are gonna try and do the easiest thing possible. And that will try and circumvent a lot of your guardrails and controls. And the more you can see how people operate in your environment, the easier it is to understand why do they wanna do those things. And from a security perspective, enable them to do those things. Um, the cloud has to move, and, and security in the cloud has to move away from no towards how, why. Let's, let's accomplish your goal, but let's do it in a secure fashion. Because unfortunately, when you make a mistake in the cloud, it's very quickly going to be something someone can exploit, and we don't want to be in the news. I mean, this is a problem that we've been struggling with for the last um, year or so. And you know, one, one, of, the, one of my uh, key stories is an is a auditor story. So who in here has to speak to auditors all the time, like I do? There's a good showing of hands. Um, so I mean, one, one of the reasons that you need to prove, validate, and provide evidence is for your auditors. You need to let them you know, prove to them that things are working the way they're supposed to be working. So we have an application that uh, is leveraging um, EC2 Elastic Beanstalk. Um, it's ephemeral. And last year, uh, we had our audit team come in and say, all right, well, we need you to, to, to log in and, so that we can look at some things. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, we, we can't. It's not up right now. Well, I mean, just pull it up and, 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 and log into it. Like, well, that's not how it works. You know, like the, the way the app works is a bunch of data drops into an S3 bucket, function pulls up, it spins up, it starts calculating some things, and then it spits out its results, and then it, and then it goes away. It's gone again. And, and so the traditional sort of way of doing your validation to making sure that the access control model for that particular identity or the administrators are working the way they're supposed to doesn't work. Right? You can't go look for the same evidence that you would look for on-prem. Um, and so we had to really go back and, and reevaluate fully how we were going to be validating and proving this sort of evidence. Um, some of it had to go around policies. Right? We have policies, as I mentioned, at various levels in the organization, um, you know, whether it's at the account and the boundary and the resource and the service, et cetera. And how do you, how do you prove a negative? Right? Like, how can you prove these various permutations of access for this one particular user who has this particular role that has these permissions associated with it across these different levels in the organization? That complexity was incredibly difficult. And we ended up resorting to some negative testing. Like, we would literally give somebody access to this and say, hey, go try to do stuff purposefully to show that this won't let you do what you need to do. Like log into this service and then try to get to this other service. Okay, it doesn't work. Here's the evidence that it didn't work. And, and so it's been a hodgepodge of lots of different tools to try to get the, the sort of evidence that we need 
that the model that we have in place is actually working. So I'm excited to hear about Access Advisor and some of the other IAM mm -hmm. tools that are coming out because it has been incredibly challenging. Divi Cloud has been one of the tools that we've been uh, leveraging quite a bit to try to get that, uh, that, that the, you know, the, the, the users to the, uh, to the group, to the role, to the permission, to try to really have visibility. The other piece is separation of duties. Uh, you know, how do I make sure that developers don't have access to the same role in production, um, especially when it comes to uh, you know, more traditional um, SOX-based applications that are really concerned about integrity of data and making sure that someone's not going in and changing the data uh, so that our financial records are intact the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, that has been a really difficult sort of uh, struggle to, to validate and make sure that these things aren't working, uh, are, are working the way they're supposed to be working. Um, and so we've had to add additional layers on top of things that, that have um, added to the complexity of our controls and the complexity of the reporting of those controls to make sure they're working appropriately. Yeah, and, and I think part of that too is also, you know, as we in technology, you know, go on this journey to the cloud and enablement, the, those non-technical portions of our organization like audit, our risk teams, our compliance teams, right? They're in a position, I think, in a lot of cases of playing catch up. Yeah. And so, you know, something like this is really something where you have to partner with those audit teams that Chris mentioned, the risk teams, and really start to educate them on what working in the cloud truly is and making sure that they understand, you know, those same principles. Uh, you know, they're, they're in there. Everything is available to you in the cloud. You can't hide anything. And, and so it's really important to make sure that the audit team is applying, you know, that, that new way of thinking as opposed to their traditional on-prem, or you're gonna be constantly in a battle with your audit teams. Except for the fact that we don't deal with anything from the ground to the hypervisor in the cloud. I think that's, for if you have especially internal auditors, that's a hard concept for them to understand if they've traditionally been doing anything from SOX to ISO to HIPAA and high trust uh, audits is there are vast swaths of those certifications that rely on everything from the physical uh, buildings to the utilities to your contracts with the data centers for maintenance that no longer exist, that you simply have to trust your provider, in this case AWS, to provide that certification. Now, thankfully, AWS does a really great job at keeping all of their certifications up to date and most auditors will trust that. But from a internal audit risk perspective, they the company has to ultimately accept that you have to trust AWS to provide you that. And the good news is it frees up everybody who used to have to deal with all of that to now focus on the application and the data and the people. I mean, we're sorry talking about this a little bit, right? So it's just a little bit so going back over again, but what, what, how, as you guys have moved into AWS and you think about compliance specifically, right? Because this is obviously the security and it's compliance and they are definitely intertwined, but they're also very different in the way that they are talked about and thought about and viewed who is working them. So how does this change your view of compliance and organization? And are, are the auditors also changing their view or has that been harder to get them to move in that direction? So Jason. Me? Um, honestly, I've always approached compliance from a security perspective. If you're doing security right, then you're accomplishing compliance. Compliance does not always equal security. Um, and so if you're doing your security right, then you're going to have 
your documented processes. You're going to have the evidence to provide that kind of triangle of trust um, that auditors want because they want to know what are you doing, what does your documentation say you're supposed to be doing, and what does the evidence say that's actually going on. And as long as all three of those match, you're good for that control. So if, from a security and identity management perspective, as long as you have that documentation, which thankfully uh, AWS provides a lot of <laughs> and in great detail, and you just have to provide your specific process around that, um, and then provide the evidence. Again, AWS provides a lot in the context of logs and activity, uh, console views in their different products and services that you can then compile that and provide that evidence back. So I do think that AWS definitely helps accelerate and ease the compliance burden of audits, but it also is dependent solely upon, well not solely, but it's dependent upon the level of comfort and knowledge that your auditors have with the cloud. Yeah, I think one of the beauties of uh, of cloud and AWS in particular is how everything is available to like go look at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you think about controls over time. You know, IT does not want to be controlled, right? You know, ultimately, you, the the way audits work um, typically is you, your controls are at the at their best right when you're getting audited, and then they degrade over time. Um, until the next audit, and then you get ready for the next audit, and then all of a sudden your controls get better again <laughs> continuously like this. It's like this weird sign curve that happens over time. I, I think one of the, the things that you can do in um, AWS is you have this concept of continuous compliance, right? So you're constantly hitting those APIs and checking to make sure that those guardrails are in place and operating the way that they're supposed to be working. Um, the, you know, your identity um, sort of paradigm is working all the time consistently, and then you can begin to check variances uh, from that standard that you have set. Um, that, for me, uh, gives me a lot more comfort uh, because now I don't have to worry about something that's happening out there that, I, you know, that will surprise me over time. Um, because you know somebody did something that's outside of a standard or outside of a policy, um, they've created some new way of doing something, uh, and, and and that continuous monitoring of the controls and the the policies and the permissions are constantly happening, um, and that gives me a lot of comfort um, because I I can have that trust uh, and and confidence in knowing that it's it's still working the way it was designed. Yeah, I mean the, the continuous compliance portion of it is it is really valuable in the, in the essence you can gather evidence whenever you need it. You know, to to Chris's point, you know, it used to be that you would wait for the audit to come. You know, at some point during the year. You talk about uh, the, you know compliance utopia <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Like, hey, I just want to give my auditors a Correct. you know access to a console and say, here's your evidence, and then I don't yeah. even have to talk to them. Like that yeah. would be fantastic. You right? know, and then they just go in and pull the information they want. Yeah. You know, that's that, that's a good thing. That's a lot of people in this room just got very excited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting when you say audit relative diam and and you know, we we've had some interesting circumstances where our app teams know their environments better than us in the center. And, and so they've actually taken the approach of auditing mm -hmm. 
the IAM in their space. And, and from a contribution model, have actually come back and said, hey, when we've looked at some things, we've seen these three or four things that maybe we should think about doing differently. Yep. And, and so, you know, because all that information is there and it's easily accessible and, you know, and, and as teams become more familiar with it, it's easier for them to kind of, you know, become our proxies yep. out in, you know, the cloud environment and, and bring information back to us to help us improve you know, that yep. security posture. Well, I'd say go to the next slide, because I want to play on that, because you're, you're, Steve, you're right. Um, no, you're totally right, because what ends up happening is if you give the developers and the people who are deploying the infrastructure and the data and the applications into the cloud the, the capability with the responsibility within the bounds of your guardrails, they become the security champions. Mm -hmm. Security doesn't have to be the guy that has to come and tell you how to do it because you're already doing it. And that gets back to security enabling you to do the things you need to do in the way you want to do it. And right. over time, they're going to be there. So with the embrace of DevOps, um, again, it's that philosophy of you do infrastructure, application, and configuration as code, ideally data as code as well. And your paradigm of logging into environments is over. Because if you need to t make a change to production, you make that change in your code, it goes into your DevOps pipeline, and that gets deployed the same way with the parameters within your environments uh, being obviously unique, but effectively it's the same. So you can log in or have a view access to any one of your environments, and your application is gonna look exactly the same it's gonna function exactly the same. Therefore, if something breaks, the question is, what's the root cause and how do you prevent that from happening again in the future without necessarily having to have a lot of complex or hands-on activity going in? Um, how does it change in the future? I really think that we have to go to attribute-based access control. Um, going back up the identity chain, it goes back to how do you define identity at your organization? How do you codify what a DevOps individual is? Who is a developer? Who is an operations? Who is a network? Who is a DBA? How do you define what they should have access to that environment so that as they're authenticating into the environment, all of the information, all of the access that they should be getting access to is provided as a part of that authentication and you don't have static credentials, you don't have static roles, you don't have static policies just sitting out there. It's all defined at the moment so that if you're starting on project A today and you start on project B tomorrow, that change is inherently driven into the cloud without being statically available because that's one of the biggest risks with role sprawl and access sprawl is that I may have 20 dev teams who I have a standard template the only thing that changes is the resources I give them access to. Well, that's 20 roles I now have to maintain and manage and make sure that there's no drift in. If you move to an attribute-based access control model where you're pulling that information from however you manage your identities on-prem, then it doesn't matter. I have one role that dynamically services all 20 teams, and I can continue to provision those exceptions from a namespace, from a tagging perspective, and AWS is really starting to provide that. The problem is, is you, your company ready to support that future capability? And I think that's the biggest issue companies have is they see all these cool things that come out at reInvent, 
And then they go back and they're like, <laughs> great, I can't use it because we can't do that. You want to chime in on this? Well, I was just saying, I, you know, the, the pipeline, I think, is, is super important. We've, yeah. we've got a concept that we talk about um, at our organization called the paved road versus the rocky road. Mm -hmm. um, and the paved road is where, you know, things are easy, they're standardized, you know, you write code, you get into production because you're using the pipeline and it flows right through. Whereas if you're doing things um, differently from a paved road, it's the rocky road and everything's hard and um, it requires a lot more effort, it takes longer. Um, to do it, and, and I, I think that's an aspect of like where the pipeline is gonna be super important. Where, where I think things are gonna change in the future is when people are you know, sort of removed from the, from the paradigm entirely. So you might have developers that are building codes, but then you have server, um, services that are being leveraged with a pipeline, no root access, and everything's immutable and ephemeral. Um, where things are spinning up and down, um, even identity to some extent is probably spinning up and down based on the services associated with it. And you know, over time, you know, that is gonna be a much, um, it, it's more complex in some ways, um, but it's better from a security perspective because that identity can't get stolen um, in the sense because that identity is gone in a second, it's gone in a flash. Um, and, and I think that's where things are, are really heading, um, and, and that's gonna make things really more difficult when it comes to validating <laughs> and proving that things are working the way yep. they're supposed more to. More negative testing. More negative yeah. testing, uh, because, because they're not there uh, to do some of that, that, that proving and validating that you need. Well, it sounds like in that world, automation just continues to be incredibly important, because yeah. as things are moving really, really quickly, obviously the, the automation and provisioning of the identity in the moment you need it, but also autom automating everything around it, orchestrating that whole world. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. We have about 10 minutes left to answer any questions in the audience, so take that time. Does anybody have any questions? This guy right here was first. <laughs> So accounts at the AWS account? Yes. So is that like using organizations yes. to provision a lot of that? Right. Um, so the question was, how do you use the account level architecture structure to implement things like roles, policies, and, and do standardization across a multi-account strategy? Um, organizations, I, I think that gets back to the pipeline and the standard way in which you deploy environments. So if you can automate the way in which your company deploys your account infrastructure, you can always ensure that you have the same type of access, the same enforcement, the same guardrails, because so for example, you can use uh, config rules, and if you're deploying that at the account organization's level, then those same config rules are always applied to every account inside of that OU that you choose to deploy them in. So I, I think that's where we're getting to um, from a organizational or, or account level. But I also think that there's 
what do you do inside of those accounts? And I think that's probably what we've been talking about more is once you have that infrastructure, how do you actually do stuff in it? Because that goes beyond the, the kind of that, the account is now that new perimeter. It's that new outer wall of your fort. And we're trying to fix the squishy things inside of it because truly that's the hard part. Yeah, and I, I think from an account strategy perspective, that's important, right, is, is understanding what is that look like? What does it look like? What, how many accounts am I going to have? Is it based on a product line? Is it based on an application? And you know, I, I've been in conversations and other sessions here where We're a business know, unit. people have yeah. thousands of accounts and they literally say one app per account. And then you go all the way to the other end where people are using you know, all product line accounts and there might be 45 apps, but because they communicate so closely with each other, they all live in one account. So I think that strategy of you know, defining that boundary is important as well. And then it enables you to layer on using organizations, as Jason said, that ability to use service control policies, maybe control tower, et cetera, um, to apply the, the guardrails in a consistent way. Next question. Mayor? How do you maintain control over non-standard access? Do you want to elaborate a little more? What do you mean by non-standard? Just so when you're trying to standardize I mean, most of that for us, at least, has been um, controlling who has the ability to change IAM policies from the get-go. So, um, I, I, you know, one of those guys is sitting over there. Um, but um, the, you know, if they can't, if they don't have the access to change it, um, then there's going to be less of the non-standard. Now, what happens is that you you create um, a bottlenecks in your organization for like work that needs to get done. Um, and there, there's a book, uh, I don't know if anyone has read The Phoenix Project. Um, hopefully everybody has, because it's fantastic. Um, but there's a book in the, uh, there's a character in there called Brent, where everything goes through Brent. And, and that, that's what happens when you do that. So you have to be very careful in controlling how, how hard you control that, that access because it could create other problems for you uh, from a process perspective, but, but that's how we control it is. There's very few people that can actually change IAM policies. But to your point, you do have to have an exception process because that's ultimately yep. what you're talking about. Your question is how do, we, how do we handle the exceptions because there's always an exception to everything you try and do. And it's true, and it comes back to your process. What's your process today? Does it work? Is it good? Can it be automated? One of the biggest challenges in the cloud is automation. How do you give people the right access at the right time? Because if it takes you two weeks and 20 people to get a role, you're not doing DevOps. You're doing terrible project management, which we've all done um, in, in our organization. So I, I think it goes back to how do we do it right? How do we give people the access they need to have without sacrificing the controls that have to be there, like getting approvals with what we want you to be able to do, but the things you can't do. Because I guarantee you, if all of a sudden we say, oh yeah, just go create your own roles, everyone's gonna be star dot star, and life's gonna be hunky-dory, except for the security team Until and all this isn't. stuff going anywhere. <laughs> um, so I mean, I, I could give you the pie in the sky utopian answer of how that should work, but pretty much nobody's ready to do that. Um, and it just comes back to what works for your company 
how can you make it better, and ultimately, how do you automate it? On the second row. Sorry, we can't see anybody past the second row. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much. <laughs> so, yeah. The question kind of relates to the first question, which is because if organization solves everything, but does isolation by account. Um, the Who wants this one? Steve? <laughs> sure. Um, no, I, I, it, it's a great question. The question was really around you know, using accounts as one boundary is one thing, but even within those accounts, there's still the concept we mentioned earlier around least privilege. And, and how do you kind of you know, upskill the development teams as, you know, really to, to really understand you know, that concept of least privilege and zero trust, whatever, whatever term you want to use. And you know, I really think it's, um, it's difficult, right? Especially when you came from you know, that, that data center box where inside of that you could be a little bit squishy and then yep. when you get to the cloud, you really want to look at, and, and as I mentioned earlier, that's why we started off with a, literally a handful of people that were managing all identity and access management as we moved to the cloud because of that fear exactly. And then, um, you know, as Jason touched on earlier, as you move along that path, what can you put in in terms of automation that gives immediate feedback to those development teams on whether or not the, the permissions and the roles, the resource policies are appropriate. And so we've, we've built some automation around that so that the pipeline now will actually reject something that's too permissive. Uh, and, and that starts to instill in them. And they can call that API in their development environments so they can test literally day one to understand if what they're trying to build out is appropriate and following that model. So it's really about an education as well, right? Um, you know, helping to educate those teams, building a platform that allows them to test their configurations, and then applying those guardrails at the time of deployment. I think there's also an aspect, as new services get rolled out by, by AWS, uh, that they're not baking in their own IAM policies or pieces into it. So that makes things really difficult as well when, like SageMaker, we were talking <laughs> about earlier, um, you know, gets rolled out. Well, you know, on the back plane of SageMaker, you can basically access anything within S3, um, and it's not controlled at the account level. Maybe it is, you know, in the new um, thing that they're rolling out. But, uh, you know, ultimately, th there, there's there's there, there's work that also needs to be done to to make sure that. Uh, as new services are getting rolled out, that they have some of these granul this granularity sort of baked in. I think what we've seen as well, a lot of customers of our customers embrace has been that it's a two pronged approach. There's guardrails, but then there's education, and and security in general is shifting. We've talked about going into the pipeline, shifting left into the pipeline, so that as developers are writing their Terraform templates or CloudFormation templates, uh, they're getting feedback immediately about what is wrong. And, and that immediate feedback loop is what we've seen be very, very impactful. If it's 24 hours later that they get an email saying this was a problem, they've forgotten and they've moved on and they're on to the next problem. They delete the email or Slack message or whatever we want. So it's that immediate mm -hmm. feedback loop shifting left and really doing the education in the process about why this might be problematic. People and developers, at least most of them, don't inherently want to do bad things. Uh, but they don't always necessarily know what the right thing is 
So the education that you're speaking of is incredibly important to that. It is, yeah. We, we probably have 30 seconds for one more question if someone wants to throw something out. Please don't make it the meaning of life. <laughs> 42. 42, done. Uh, as you find <laughs> KMS. It's a good one to have so I, I think <laughs> first the question is, we're, we're moving away from a security warden to evangelist uh, mentality in the cloud. What is the service or services that we as evangelists have found the most resonating with development groups? And we are out of time, so you must answer in five words. Five words? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to think about that. KMS. Yeah. Steve? KMS. Um, no, I, I think it's important. You know, when, when we look at AWS, it's, it's really around visibility and transparency. Um, you, know, you, you touched on it earlier. Uh, you know, we can enable a new service. We can write guardrails. We can put in the detective and responsive controls. But we need to get that feedback to the developers as quickly as possible. And we just use the telemetry that the cloud provides for us to do that. And we may use the native tools, whether it's config or guard duty or you know, um, whatever tool of choice you use. But it's really about how do I close the loop? Yep. Getting it to us is only one part of it. We then need to get it back to the developers so they're learning as well. We actually just got um, our AWS product team actually just approved us to say, look, anything in development that's non-compliant, immediately destroy it but communicate with the individual that created it about why. That's a huge advantage for us and a huge step forward in the development teams being accepting of it, allowing us to improve our security posture via automation, so it's not a bunch of people looking at reports on a daily basis, and, and just being able to educate, you know, being able to be part of the, the learning curve and swinging it upwards as opposed to, to your point, being wardens and pulling everything down. So to, to get my answer, there isn't one service. It's the philosophy that security needs to get out of the way of mm -hmm. the business and giving them the tools and capability to do the right thing at the right time. And ultimately, security, doing better, being better, and then expecting better from the organization because we've given them that ability to do it themselves and to drive security inherently and natively within what they're doing. Not being yanked awesome. off the stage yet. Well, anyways, thank you guys very much for coming out. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.